Welcome to The Theatre Project. Today, The Theatre Project is thinking about the set design process. Hi, I'm Mark Spina, the director of The Theatre Project. Today, we're thinking about set design with designer Fred Kinney. Fred and I are going to imagine what it would be like to work together on a production of The Glass Menagerie as a way of illustrating his process. Fred is a California-based designer who has designed over 80 theater productions as well as trade shows and television. He has worked at numerous theaters, including California's South Coast Repertory and San Diego Repertory, and New Jersey's Shakespeare Theater, New Jersey Repertory Company, and even The Theater Project. He has also designed in Europe at Vienna's English Theater. TV credits include Larry the Cable Guy's Christmas Extravaganza, Jeopardy, Urban Monk, and Basketball Wives. Fred is a professor of scenic design at California State University, Fullerton. He has been a visiting artist at Stanford University and Montclair State University. He is also a great friend and a generous colleague and one of the most talented people I know. Fred, we are so grateful that you've agreed to work with us on this project. I want you to guide us through creating the design for Glass Menagerie. Well, I think the first thing that I would usually do, and I, I really push for designers, you got to read the script before talking to the director. So you really have to understand that script. Because otherwise what happens is it comes through the filter of the director, which is important. But you also have to have it sort of unfiltered, like just the words and your thoughts, because you might come to ideas the director didn't even think about, which then they like better. Mm -hmm. Versus if they already kind of give you guideposts to start, then you're going to be limited in looking at those guideposts. However, I also say in that first meeting, just listen to the director. So then you're getting the play unfiltered theoretically or you know there's stage directions maybe if you're reading the broadway version but at least you're getting it without as much your ideas as you can and then when you meet with the director i try to just ask questions in the first meeting you know that's what i would say is do you see keeping it in the period that's almost always a big question i asked and i always think that if a play if they don't say what period they're in and if there's not clues to it, normally I think of it usually taking place if it says contemporary or something. Generally, I look at it as being a year or two before the play was actually published mm -hmm. because it's generally they start writing right. it, you know. And and that's where a lot of times I start. I usually do a, like something like a, like Tennessee Williams and any of those or an Arthur Miller play. A lot of times I'll do a little more research into the playwright and the impetus for them writing those specific plays versus if it was like maybe a new play where you know the the playwright might actually tell you you know oh i wrote it for these reasons so in this case you might do a little bit of i tend to do a little bit more research in in that respect about maybe where they lived when they wrote it because there's all those little clues mm -hmm. like in this case where do you live in st louis like how how does st louis play an important part and how would that translate to our production because that's going to be the set you know mm -hmm. how much of a st louis influence is there or, or is it not as important and I, I i would tend to have that understanding of the geography of especially the era 
and um, what that architecture looks like. Like, obviously, some of the iconic parts of that uh, is Tom going out mm-hmm. on a, a fire escape. I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is thinking that fire escapes are always mm-hmm. alike versus you really got to take a look and see, are there differences? Like, are they manufactured in St. Louis? Back then, everything wasn't as so much made in factories in China. So it was usually a little more specific. Mm-hmm. You know, what could help drive that specificity if that's what's that's what the production is going after. I always think it's good to know the reality, know if we were doing it quote unquote realistic first Mm -hmm. and then layer on, okay, it's a memory play, but memories are things that go in and then get regurgitated, but they have to go in from someplace. Like rarely do we have a dream that's completely just made up of nothing, especially not even a dream, a memory. Usually, even if our memories are false, they usually have some grain of truth, Mm -hmm. you know? So I always think that the other big thing that is definitely something that I think is a stylistic thing of approach is, and this, this different directors, I think are more so than I think designers are always like, whose play is it? And and uh, a lot of times they mean by what's the driving character? Like, you know, in this case, I remember once a director saying, it's it's the mom's play. The mom is really the driving character. And I, I generally don't think in those terms as a designer. I do think, though, if that's important to the director, then it becomes important to you. Anything that out of that first meeting that the director says is important, uh, make it important to you because it's going to be the show. The director is is ultimately the captain. And if they understand that and everyone else is getting that information, you know, if the lighting designer is feeling, you know, and the, the, the actors and so forth, then that's an important thing to think about. You know, what does that mean for your set? So for instance, Fred, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about if, if the director, or in this case, me said, I think it's Tom's play. Or I think it's right. Laura's play. So how would that influence right. your set design? If I think it's the son's play versus I think it's the daughter's play? I think that's a great, great question. In fact, that would be a conversation like if if the director wasn't sure how they thought about it. And, you know, in this case, if you asked, I would say, I think if it's Tom's play, I think one of the things that we try to do is make sure that where he goes out and his speaking place is maybe elevated because it's him looking at maybe you step up a little bit before you go down mm. because one of the conceits in this play is they enter and exit through the uh, uh, a fire escape okay and so maybe there's a way that that in Tom's mind he remembers walking up or the reverse. Maybe in, in the Bergdorf, maybe we elevate the deck a little bit higher. The Bergdorf, for anyone who doesn't know, is a converted 1920s church that has been functioning as a theater, I think, for at least 30 years. Mm-hmm. So it, even though it was a church, it's had a long time as a theater. I don't think it's fully converted. Maybe it has been since I've left, but uh, uh, it's in the process of conversion. So it's got some elevated seats. You know, but it's not like it's got full traps or anything like that yet. So I think in a space like that, I think I would approach it like, is he closer to the audience? Does he come down? Does he maybe come down a couple mm-hmm. steps and talk to the audience a little a little bit closer? If it's her play, would she remember maybe the glass menagerie being bigger or smaller? Or is it more expressionistic? Mm-hmm. 
that's her world. Maybe is there a way if we started to branch into the memory that maybe the deck is full of a bunch of these animals mm-hmm. and all of a sudden at one point it just lights up and it glows because th- it represents the world in her mind she sees herself exploring mm-hmm. in this little prop. It's actually the whole world. I don't think that would be the same if it was Tom's play because I don't think Tom would look at – he doesn't live in that menagerie world. So I think – in a way, I, I do think that would affect the set if it was if we looked at it one of the two. The other thing is how they look at the father. You know, how, like um, is if there's a portrait of the father, which you know I've done it a few different ways. We once we've had we used a picture of the actor playing Tom and Photoshop them right. a bit. The actor playing Tom. One time, I think I've done it where we used Tom's actually the actor playing Tom, we used his father. So we had a picture of his father, uh, who I don't think he was an actor. I don't remember, but I know the photo. I believe either either it was like from when he was in the Navy in World War II or something, or where we Photoshopped it. I don't, I don't remember, but it, I know it was his father. And we've also discussed one time uh, we wanted to actually use the playwright himself, get a photo of the playwright, and then Photoshop it. And, and pretty good, you know, kind of like people now see deep fake videos. We could, you know, right now we can just, without AI, I mean, maybe we can do even AI now, but uh, we're just using Photoshop. We could usually create almost any image that would work on theater at that distance to look pretty real. Mm-hmm. I mean, under close inspection, maybe, maybe not. But I think once we did it where, I don't know if we did it or we just talked about it. There's a memory of a of <laughs> of a design choice. Uh-huh. We were going to project the father, and then it was going to become Tom. So, in other words, the idea was the father, which I think I don't remember. If, actually, I don't even remember if we did it or not. It's a great idea. I, I, I do remember, but yeah. So, I think the intent, and so this would probably make it. This could be Tom's play. This could also be the way. Laura's play. I don't think it would be the mom's, but maybe it is the mom. That one is a little more ambiguous, right. but it would be interesting. The The last time I did it, I don't think the director ever discussed whose play he thought it mm-hmm. was. That I don't think was part of it. One of the big parts of the last time I did it, I will say, is the costumes. I would go under the category of uber period or um, ultra period or, or hyper period, where, where the choices were usually like like I think some of them were knickers, mm-hmm. you know, like where it really felt almost to the point of the period where it kind of takes you out a little bit, but it worked it, because it was all done that way. The last time I did this production, which maybe we should think about, Mark, because I thought it was effective, mm-hmm. is we, we had a music that was composed for it. Okay. So it had its own composition with a composer there during tech. Mm-hmm who wrote music for it. Mm-hmm. And I will say normally, and with a show, I probably wouldn't talk as much about past ways I've did it, but I think for a podcast, I think it's sure. good for others to hear it. And I will say that because this is such an iconic piece, a lot of times when I have done this show and a few other shows I've done more than once, mm-hmm. a lot of times the director's We'll talk about ways they might have done it and I might have mm-hmm. done it. More so, of course, than a new piece because it's new right. or a piece that's not necessarily to this level. Like if we were doing Proof, which, again, is an American play, 
we think of it as being a porch, but honestly, I think we would we would probably say, okay, let's just do it. it. Maybe talk a tiny bit about if we've done it before, but not to the degree of an Arthur Miller play or a Tennessee. Williams, okay, so let's. Which sorry, Fred, but I want to jump in on that point. And he, here's here's what I think is the tragedy of the Glass Menagerie, is that you can only see it for the first time once. Yes. And I'm always asking myself when I watch it again, how can you create that magic of that encounter between Laura and the gentleman caller? Because I remember so vividly watching it for the very first time and thinking, oh, maybe, maybe right. they're going to get together. And that the, yeah. the craziness of the mother notwithstanding reality is somehow stretching to accommodate Laura. And then I agree. 100%. How do you, how can it's so hard to create that for an audience that knows ahead of time. So I, I always Correct. look, I'm always jealous of people who can see that play for the first time. So I, I don't, I don't know. And I don't know if it's possible, but what would you suggest? I would, I would first tell the director if they said that, like I'd say, Hey Mark, I think that's true. I don't know if the set can do mm-hmm. that, though, <laughs> because, the, you know, in other words, it's just a set, mm-hmm, right? right? However, however, at the same time, I think the set can be a component to that. I actually say 100% the same thing with Romeo and Juliet, is whenever I see Romeo and Juliet, to me, it it is super effective. If even if you know what's going to happen, and even if you haven't seen the play, you know what happens generally as a kid, because you've heard about it, okay? So is man you want it to be one of these victorian rewrites where they don't die okay and there are victorian <laughs> right, rewrites right. that is true we don't do them generally at all but you kind of almost kind of hope for that right so that i understand that completely mark i think you know part of it is by embracing something that the things we know we need like the fire escape and then like the glass menagerie but trying to figure out a new way to do them that might sort of trick the audience enough visually to think, mm-hmm. is there a different version of this? Because again, they do know it right. and they just get lost in the moment and they forget. And I think a lot of that is visual seduction mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean it always has to be just beautiful, mm-hmm. but it's got to be interesting. And a lot of times I know people use the word interesting to mean, Oh, it was an interesting I think interesting is one of the best compliments because it's like, oh, you're actually interesting. Mm-hmm, you're drawn in. You're entertained. Yes. If Think about a mystery. You want to know what happens next. And in this case, I think if they're performing, and this might come a little more to the actors, where you know when they make that, again, I'm not an actor, but a lot of times when you read an acting review uh, or you hear about it where they're, and the, the commentators or the critic or, or the uh, director will say something along the lines of, they telegraph what was going to happen next. Mm-hmm. In this case, they got to completely do the opposite. So that even though you're seeing it again, you kind of forget it's coming. So in some ways, I know that I'm saying it the actors, but by giving them a world to live in and, and trying to embrace the idea it's a world, that it's a place, not a set. Because in a set, we think of it as being like curtains and fakey. Mm-hmm. But if we believe the idea that this is the world these characters inhabit, and these are their clothes, not their costumes, mm-hmm. in some ways, it, it then, I think, supports 
the actor's ability to not telegraph what we already know. So, so I think by being unique, by, by really approaching it in, in those ways, like if we were to say, let's find a wallpaper that we feel really nails the look of this. And the minute people see it, they you go, oh, I, I feel I'm in this world already. By seeing that and really believing it, and again, the wallpaper could be part of it. The way it's lit could be part of it. It could be the fact that maybe even though you have what looks like a real wall, maybe as the whole show progresses, all the walls start to separate. Hmm. Like the world is kind of opening or falling apart. And people start to go, what is that? Mm -hmm. By being seduced by those things, it creates interest. They're wanting to know what's going to happen next. But the thing they don't know, they've seen the show before. They've never seen it with walls that slowly separate as maybe the glass menagerie gets somehow it looks like it's getting larger by doing the trick that it's coming out of the floor. Mm -hmm. Like, again, that probably would be Laura's interpretation. Or maybe it's the mom going like, oh, my God, you're getting lost into this this uh, glass menagerie. Either way, the audience has not seen that before. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I think we're tricking their brain to think, well, I don't know what's going to happen because I haven't I, seen I love this that before. idea, Fred, I have to say. <laughs> well, there you go. Here's the thing. This is how you make sure you maintain work, by using your words or your images to get the director excited about doing the show. Mm -hmm. So if the director's like, here's three shows I'm looking at, and you say, hey, what about this one? And then they talk about it, you're like, oh, I can visually see it. Mm -hmm. You know, I always say, try to try to use your words to paint a cinematic picture. Although I use words, I also believe in the show them, don't tell them. Mm -hmm. Like if I was probably actually doing this show, I would probably listen to what Mark had to say, listen about it. And she, we he ultimately says, give me two versions. One with really Tom focused and really Laura focused. I'd bring those two in, but not tell them what I'm going to do. I'll wait till I show them. Mm -hmm. And then the director goes, oh, and showing them. And this is where we get a little bit inside baseball. It could be sketches, like pencil sketches mm -hmm. on paper. Sometimes if you have a really good idea, maybe do it right there when the director's there. Usually we mostly meet directors either at the theater, if they're doing the show before, I'm doing a show before and we happen to be there, meet during the breaks. Two, you meet like at coffee houses or restaurants, or, or you might meet in people's houses. Uh, only the biggest directors we usually have offices. And even in LA, uh, in the old days, people had bungalows on back lots. That it's not that that doesn't happen, but those are only the really big guys. Mm -hmm. It used to be a lot of people. Usually, we, I just met with the director just the other day at a place called House of Pies, you know, which is a very famous place in Los Feliz. And I think everyone was a writer or something or a producer. You could kind of hear bits of conversation. But a lot of times, you're usually meeting there. And I always bring now my iPad, which it's not too much of a, a, a unique thing that people know that you can draw on an iPad. So a lot of times I might draw on an iPad. I might draw with uh, on, on pencil and paper. It just depends on what seems right. If it's pencil and paper, one of the things I like to do is, is if I'm drawing something, is then just give them the sheet of paper and go, hey, take the sketch. And they're like, well, don't you need it? Usually once I draw it, I yeah. go, two, I might take a photo with my phone. You know, I might take it sneaky when they're in the bathroom to make it look like I can just remember everything. Or I might just say, let me take a picture. <laughs> or if they want a digital, take a picture and send them that. If it's an iPad, 
uh, you can draw it, then of course just send it mm-hmm. digitally, which is a big advantage for the digital. I, I feel every show sort of has maybe it's in. Like I think Glass Menagerie, I'd probably do by hand because I feel there's something by hand about mm-hmm. it. If we were doing like company, probably do that on my iPad right, because right. I would feel more corporate and we probably want to make it look contemporary mm-hmm. or something. So I think I think the mediums that you choose a little bit would be kind of like that, which would kind of bring me to at our second meeting or third meeting, depending upon, again, somewhere in that neighborhood. I used to, in the old days, we'd bring in actual physical research, like printouts or something. Now in the digital age, normally what I do is set up a Dropbox or something like that, a file sharing and research images. And I think most directors like this. I'll usually put them in folders I try not to make them hierarchical, even though let's say we're looking at three different couches for Glass Menagerie. I generally just say couch one, two, or three, not in any order. So that I'm not trying to push the director. In a way, I'm letting them go look through each of these and kind of like the wallpaper. We'll go back to the wallpaper idea. I might love four different wallpapers. I actually, a lot of times are hard for me to make a decision, you know, because I love three or four different things. A lot of times what I will do, if there are other designers attached during this time, sometimes there are, sometimes in American Regional Theater, there's not yet. A lot of times lighting designers are the last to get hired. Not always, but it does happen. Partly because lighting designers work the most, so they're constantly kind of taking gigs. Mm -hmm. Partly because it's just the nature of the way things are. And also it's the fact that scenery, our due date is the earliest because the scenic shops need more time than for lighting or costumes generally. So we have to be hired first. If we do have the other uh, members, the other team members of the design team, I will reach out to them a lot of times, especially if I've worked them before and I know them. And here's the reason why I usually do it. So we're all on the same page when I show the research to Mark. So for example, I'll send three wallpapers, four wallpapers, five, you know, something like that. Usually I can narrow that down to lighting and cost and let them look at them. So if there's one or two that they know is going to cause an issue, like costumes is like, I think that's really going to not look good with the the dress that we really kind of want. That's not going to go to Mark because the last thing I want to do is send something to Mark that will not work for the team because there's no reason. If there's something that I really think is right, or there's not, the people aren't uh, assigned yet, or they're not, they haven't had time to work on it, and I really have to have things turned in. I show Mark, and and Mark and I really love, we'll say wallpaper number one, and costumes and lighting are later like, ah, for whatever reason. (laughs) Then we have a conversation. I, I always say one of the best things to try to do is leave your ego at the door and listen to the group in general. And this is good advice for directors too, especially I I would say a newer director. And one of the reasons why just like lighting designers get to do more shows than set designers, sound designers usually even get to do more than them is the fact that most set designers get to do even more shows than directors, because we can usually kind of double and triple book the amount of time one show Mm -hmm. takes to get on stage, because we can also put more things on assistants than directors can. Just like directors can put more things on assistants than playwrights can. (laughs) You know what I mean? Which is sort of true because you're doing a musical. I've worked with a musical director. They weren't there for the first two weeks because it was all about dancing and the music. Because it's choreographer and the musical director. Playwright, 
probably can't do that. I can do more shows because I can have a system. Like, here's sort of the design. In this case, the wallpaper. We might have to build, and we use the term build the wallpaper because we're building it digitally. Mm -hmm. We might find this gorgeous wallpaper. Obviously, it's probably no longer made. Sometimes you can find a storehouse of it in the South mm -hmm. for whatever reason, like in Georgia or probably not Georgia anymore, but maybe North Carolina, like Tennessee. There's these store, like old places that I find these sometimes. And now with the internet, they're more sold out than ever before. But I can put an assistant on that. Tracking down the wallpaper, we can't find it, then let's build it, which would mean digitally recreating the wallpaper, which which is more so than just finding a picture of it because you can't, usually the picture's not gonna be high enough quality to print out and look good, even at our distance. So you you would build it, you would create it, recreate it. So, um, and then print it. So I could have someone doing all of that Well, versus a director's gotta be in, in, in the rehearsal. So in a way, I think it's good for directors sometimes to trust your designers. If the lighting, scenery, and costume go, we know you love wallpaper number one, but we really think wallpaper number two is going to be a better overall choice for all the different scenes and under different lighting and whatever, then just look at it. And that's another thing. Print out a sample piece, and this goes for everything. I'm using wallpaper, but it could be the floor texture, okay? It could be a paint treatment, a scumble treatment. It could be bricks. You know, you're looking at two different bricks, and it's it's a, where there's a lot of brick on your set. You're doing West Side Story, mm -hmm. and you want a lot of brick. I would say try, hopefully have enough time and budget to look at printing or painting a sample that everyone can kind of look at. You know, again, this is this would be meeting number like six. But if we like the overall idea, and here are some of the things that we create. And they're not always in exactly this order either, depending upon the show, the, what are the requirements of the theater, the producers, so forth. But generally, as set designers, in the early stages, we do sketches or three-dimensional modeling. We do actual physical models, which generally range in scale from you know, about this big to really big, <laughs> you know, like in the United States, we generally make models. Um, and if you kind of visualize, they're like in usually quarter inch or half inch scale. So you figure in a quarter inch model, if, if it's 20 feet, then we have like five inches across. Mm -hmm. So if it's a half inch model, it would be twice as big. So essentially it's a scaled down version of what the set will be. And they can be physical, they can be digital. It, there's advantages and, and disadvantages to both, you know, physical and digital models. Usually this would happen about midway through. Sometimes they're just white uh, models, which would be like white cardstock models. And then the color might go on it or it might never go on it. And there could be a color elevation. That's in old the older days, that's what we used to always do. Now we generally do make a color model, but not mm -hmm. always. Sometimes you don't have time. Sometimes you don't have budget. I will say my advice for those who are designing and directing, the great thing about a white model is you really care about the way it works as a machine for doing this show. Mm -hmm. Once you add color, a lot of times color can be distracting. Not that you don't have to have color in the model at some point it, if you're going to have not a white set, but you do need to figure out when to add that because I will say this does happen and it, it could happen on Glass Menagerie. You go into a meeting and in the model or your sketch is color 
and you you really need to do is walk out of the meeting with a ground plan that we agree upon, mm-hmm. right? Because at some point you have to have a ground plan that that uh, the lighting designer can use, that the TDs can use, and those due dates will start coming up. The ground plan, all of a sudden that meeting just becomes about color because color is so visceral and important. You should mm-hmm. always have color there in your research, maybe in a sketch, but the minute it goes into that model, the color becomes so much more real that it might derail that meeting. And I think one of the things to think about is agreeing upon the machine of how you're going to do the show. Like Glass Menagerie, the machine would be where those props are on the deck because they're all pretty important to the show. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of what's needed. And then the fire escape. I mean, if we had to do this super low budget, let's just say we're doing it at uh, Bergdorf and Mark was like, Fred, I think we're only going to have we'll say currently a thousand dollars, right? You know, which two years ago, that would be 50 bucks. No, <laughs> right. Be, yeah. Inflation is bad, but maybe not that bad, right. but, but it feels like it a little bit. So mm-hmm. if it was something like that, like a thousand dollars or sub a thousand dollars, what would we most invest in? I think the most important thing would probably be depending upon how much people see the floor, it would be painting the floor, mm-hmm. you know, or floor treatment of some sort. If the Bergdorf's used where the audience is flat and you don't really see the deck so much, maybe don't think about it as much. But then it would be getting really, really good-looking props that felt right. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, again, we do need this, the, the fire escape. It would be some sort of fire escape that I think at least you could have a couple stair levels to get up on. Mm-hmm. Okay, just to maybe give some variety, he could sit on them. But maybe the rest of the stairs are 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 built where no one can walk on them, and they just go all the way up into the the grid, or in you know mm-hmm. up just until they disappear right. up until the grid or whatever it's up there in the Bergdorf, and and those you can't walk on. So one of the, one of the thing, if we were doing it in the Bergdorf and we were like you know a thousand dollars or less kind of budget, I think one of the things that would be important is figure out exactly how we use that fire escape. And for example, the fire escape, maybe we get at least three or four feet of usable fire escape where where Tom could sit on it. He could maybe stand on it and stare, not just on the deck. If we said that that was the bottom of the fire escape, maybe really make sure the, the hand railing would be sitable for Tom mm-hmm. so that we could have a, another way he could engage in the world that is being able to engage in the world in a unique and, and, and realistic manner. I think the more you can do that, I think that's money well spent. And if, for example, we had the fire escape extend as if they're in kind of a tenement housing kind of situation, a, a more of a crowded apartment, have it extend all the way up into the grid of the Bergdorf. However, for budget reasons, past about maybe four to six feet, it becomes unusable. And the key there is just safety, making sure that the actor does not go past it. Uh, the last time I did this production, we did something like that because we had a uh, maybe make it go up 30 feet or something quite high. And what we used is a, a structural ladder for the first six to eight feet. And then, and then we would have it chained off during the rehearsal up until like the last day so that, you know, and then they would always be put back on 
that's part of the stage management's duty. Again, mm-hmm. it's a little inside baseball. Sure. But for those who are interested in, in the way that uh, we would do something that could be unsafe is just safety procedures. And in that case, luckily, nothing ever happened. No one really walked past it. But that would be a way to, to maybe get more bang for your buck mm-hmm. is thinking about what. So let me ask you this question, Fred. Just going back to the characters for a minute. Um, you know, I do think it's a fascinating question. You know, who's who's driving this play? Whose play is it, Laura or Tom? And yet everyone always talks about the Glass Menagerie as the mother. The mother is the way the play is always labeled. It was Jessica Tandy's Glass Menagerie. It was Catherine Hepburn's Glass Menagerie. It was Lorette Taylor's Glass Menagerie. So if I came to you as a director and said, I, I think the play is either Laura's or I think it's Tom's, and yet the mother is so important. Is that a set design question or is that just something for the director to work out in rehearsal? I think all things are good to tell the set designer because you don't know how it might help them. I think if I heard, hey, I really feel that I really want to look at this as Laura's play, that this is Laura's memory and she's thinking about Tom and her mom. I kind of think that would help the set designer think about where the things are going to be maybe staged ground plan wise. And it also might help the idea of imagery. One idea would be, and I was just thinking of this when we were talking about an inexpensive production. If Mark and I, or Mark by himself, or the design team, or whoever, couldn't decide between it's Tom's or Laura's memory, and they wanted the audience not to be sure, mm-hmm. what if we put things where they could move? So that, for example, uh, again, keep it within the world so it, we believe it, mm-hmm. like the fire escape. The fire escape is actually built onto wheels so that actually gets moved either by the actors because it's really inexpensive and we can't have other people move it. B, we have a little bit of money, so we put in a tiny bit of automation. Mm-hmm. Automation is a lot less expensive than it's ever been before and it will continually become less expensive. And we automated this thing so that it actually was upstage at some point. And then as Tom's talking, the whole thing rotates Mm. downstage. The same thing with Laura's uh, Glass Menagerie. Maybe there's a way that, again, that's maybe automated. Or maybe it's just on wheels, but they're really, really, really Mm -hmm. smooth wheels, which we do have. And Laura's able, one-handed, as she's talking, walk down with it and then sit. So we have it upstage for Tom. It's far away. He sees it as this ditzy thing. And when it becomes Laura's play, Laura moves it all the way downstage, you know? So there you go would be like a whose play is it, which could be our end to that show. Mm -hmm. I think, I think, and I I will say uh, single set shows, I generally don't do this, but on multi-set shows that don't have subtitles for each scene, I will normally either come up with them I will ask the director to come up with them or we'll do it together. For example, again, not this show, but maybe we look at it. Maybe we look at each. There's a term called a French scene, which is when anyone enters or exits. Sometimes a show like this, if we were going to break it down to whose play is it, I might say, hey, Mark, let's spend a, a meeting going through the script and look at the French scenes and look at whose play is it by French scenes? And this would probably also involve lighting. It costumes, maybe, but the costume design, we might have the sketches. But lighting, I think, would be important. And sound, 
because maybe every time it's a different person, this does feel very melodrama, but I think the tools of melodrama used properly actually would support this. So for example, the mom has her music. And maybe it's not too over the top, the same as Laura. It's the sounds. Maybe every time we think that Tom is important and it's these Tom monologues, maybe we embrace the idea a little bit that the fire escape is more blue like the sea Mm -hmm. than black or gray. And there's that it becomes sort of this subconscious thing Mm -hmm. that he's standing there. We feel that he's on this ship. So that, I think, is a way to sort of embrace that memory Mm -hmm. that, again, thinking is of Laura is looking at him talking. And that would totally influence me if we even if we wanted the stairs, the fire escape to be behind him, we might want to put some potted plants that he could stand on so he can actually stand on that railing Mm -hmm. and get it elevated. Even if he's elevated nine inches, that is a lot to everyone who's on the floor. Those things actually are very helpful to a designer, I think. All that information, I think, can be useful. And I think ways to approach the script, like looking at the French scenes, if it's a multi-set show, creating subtitles that are the most important thing. An example of a show that I think is, in a way, similar, even though it's very different, it's similar because there is this memory aspect to it is wit, mm-hmm. which is a play about a woman dying of cancer. And that's that unlike a glass menagerie, it's kind of done as a single set, but with stuff coming in and off. Right. right. Okay. In that case, like glass menagerie, there's a few things, but they're all super important. Like the bed, she's in a bed cause she's dying of cancer. She's in the hospital. She's, you know, waiting room chairs. So, One of the things that I would approach for that would be to look at each of those scenes and the author does not give us a name of each scene. I would sit through and when I've done it before and if I would do a play like that again with the director and we said the name of each of these scenes, we'll say um, one of them was like, I I think we kept it to one word things. For example, Mm -hmm. tests when she was going through these battery of tests. So in this case, if we look back at that using that process for wit, adapting that process to uh, Blast Menagerie, I'd probably say, let's look at each of the, the scenes, both the ones that Tennessee Williams gives us and the ones that in our own mind, French scene to make our own kind of mm-hmm. scenes. And again, we don't want to call them scenes because we didn't want to be confusing, right. but, and they made more sense in, in a way for us and again, that influenced the lighting, that influenced the way we actually had platforms that would that were at an angle come in and off in order to create a world that would work for these, even though they weren't the way the scenes ended and started, because we needed them at different times. So uh, I think I'd approach Class Menagerie like that, where we might look at what are our own internal moments that we want things to move. Or let's say we can't even move them. This is where lighting would help us. And then the lighting designer would be like, oh, I can bring up light in this area, that area. And what I would then is make sure, because light is affected by what it bounces off of, how can I support that? For example, with the glass menagerie itself, are they mirror table? So that when he hits it, the light just bounces Mm -hmm. all off of it. And if he's like, I love that idea. I really want to emphasize that. Then we're like, well, what if even we did the same trick for Tom's and we put a mirror on the floor? So when Tom 
is outside and you shoot with the direct down light, he's actually lit from the floor oh, up. Okay. But the audience won't even really know uh-huh. because it's the bounce. So it's creating this language that then we can then move the play through it. For example, Laura's, maybe there's a way, again, it would partly lighting, partly props, would be, for example, we want the mirrors so that at this point it's really it's really glowing, but at the other time we don't. We want it to feel deader. Again, this could be a prop thing. What if her little stand, the glass menagerie has twofold bottom and then she flips it and make it part of the, the blocking, part of the choreography. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's this little musical interlude, you know, and audience just think she's playing with her pieces, right. but what she's really doing is flipping it. So now it's a black like felt. Mm-hmm. So the black felt then will bounce a, a tiny bit of light mm-hmm. comparatively so that later when there's the big bounce, it feels right, different. Right. It's a way that going back to how do people see the show for the first time, it's something they probably didn't see the last time they saw this show. So it makes them trick their mind into going, wait, what's going to happen next? Even though they all know what's going to happen what next. What would you suggest? You know, next time you go see a play, just ask yourself, look at all the things that had to be chosen. I'm just thinking of what I might say to students. If I say something like, Fred, you know, most of our audience here are theater goers as opposed to theater practitioners. Yeah. You know, what would you suggest yeah. that they start looking at when they enter a theater to just be more aware of the set of what the set designer's process is and what he's what he's contributed to what you're actually experiencing. Generally, when you see a show uh, as a theater goer, the first thing you normally see is the set. And, you know, even if there's a curtain show and the curtain comes up, you know, the set is there. You know, there are a few exceptions where the set comes on later, but that's not the norm. That's that first glimpse into that world. Yeah, the next time you go see a show, the visual world created by the scenery is what needs to ground that show so that we believe what they're doing and saying is real. So, Fred, this has been a great conversation, and you've given us so much insight into the the process that goes into set design and the collaborative aspects of it. What would you say suggest to theater goers, you know, now that they've heard this, what would you suggest they maybe pay a little more attention to the next time they walk into a theater? I think one of the most important things as far as the the scenic design to think about is how that grounds the world in the reality that you're going to lose yourself in for the next hour and a half, two, three hours. And whether it's a memory play or whether it's, you know, a musical comedy, it helps us believe the actions and the words of the actors in that space during that time. Fred, I would love to do a whole nother podcast with you later on. Thank you so much, Fred. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Theatre Project Thinks About. We hope you enjoyed taking a deeper look into everything that goes into designing a set. Our audio engineer was Gary Glore, and our theme music was by Gail Liu and Damien DeSandes. Visit thetheaterproject.org to sign up for our mailing list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving a comment on our Facebook or Instagram page. That's all for this episode. We'll see you next time.